My name's Andy, by the way. I'm one of the pastors here. I don't know if you guys saw on your way in, but the church got, got uh, it's starting the paint process. It looks great. Um, so they're con- going to continuing on, but we're pretty excited about that. Got a little little facelift here, which looks looks wonderful. We're excited. Um, we are uh, in in Daniel. We're, we're kind of getting, getting really deep into it. And so last week, uh, Pastor Brian shared about Daniel 4 and looked at Nebuchadnezzar and kind of looking at pride and what it can do to you and, and really even full submission to God and what that looks like as well. And so today we're going to be digging into it as well. Uh, Before we do, though, one of the things I love and I think is really interesting about Christianity is the way that it has kind of permeated our society today in in very different ways. And one of the things that that I find uh, particularly interesting is is the vocabulary that we use that has... Uh, biblical origins, whether we know it or not, whether we realize it or not, there is. And so I kind of went into a, a deep dive, a little bit of, of looking into some of these. And so I, I, I found a couple. I don't know if some of these you may know, some of these you may not know, but uh, there's a, there's some things that we're gonna, I'm just going to bring up that came from the Bible, the phrases we use on our, on, on the regular basis, possibly. So here's here's one: the phrase um, at the eleventh hour. You know, you finish something at the eleventh hour. It's just like it's late. It's last minute. Well, that comes from Matthew 20. I don't know if you ever realize that. Also, the uh, I'm at my wit's end. Those of you with uh, little kids, you say this a lot. Well, that's a very biblical saying because it comes out of Psalm uh, 107. Uh, by the skin of my teeth. That comes from Job, which is kind of interesting. Uh, the land of milk and honey, you probably heard that one. Obviously, it comes from the Exodus and, and kind of the, the land of milk and honey. Uh, there's a, a fly in the ointment. We run into that phrase quite often, talking about kind of the tainting of, of medicine. That comes out of Ecclesiastes. Uh, a leopard can't change its spots. We, we run into that a lot of movies and, and all that the, to identify someone who, you know, you just can't change who you are. Sometimes Jeremiah brings that up. Uh, and then the, the phrase, nothing new is under the sun. Right to kind of talk and, and illustrate the fact that just kind of there's really nothing new. Things just kind of repeat. That comes from King Solomon. Um, and today, and what the reason why I was kind of intrigued with these is we come up with the phrase, or we run into the phrase rather, the writing is on the wall. And, and what's interesting about this is I even read, you know, this week, I was a, I'm a big Blazer fan, and one of the, one of the, t- the headlines was, you know, for the Blazers, uh, you know, is the writing on the wall for the Portland Trail Blazers? It was a little bit of a rough week if you're a Blazer fan, just with the emotional roller coaster. You know why if you're a Blazer fan. But uh, it was interesting to, to think how much influence the, the Bible has even today. Even today, and, we, and we don't even realize it, but it just kind of digs into there. So today, we're going to be looking at that passage where the writing is on the wall. And we're going to talk about what that story is and what it means for you and I even today. Now, because we're in it, sometimes it's good to kind of take a step back and look at a little bit of the timeline. Because if, if you recall, last week, Pastor Brian unpacked the story of Nebuchadnezzar. And so today, we're actually going to jump uh, f- far to the end of, of um, Daniel's life. Not the very end, but, but towards the end of it. So let's look at a quick timeline here. We got one. This, is, this comes from Pastor Brandon. showed this on uh, day one when, he, when we started this, this series. But you'll notice the, these are the chapters in Daniel, kind of where they show up. And it's not in, in absolute chronological order. We jump around a little bit. So yesterday we were in, and you'll see a little circle here. We were in uh, 602 B.C. And then uh, today... The next chapter, chapter, chapter uh, 4 to 5, we end up in 539 B.C. That's a big jump. 
That, that, that's a big jump, and so it's good to be unpacking some of these, uh, some of these, you know, this historical background, because if you don't realize it, things don't quite make sense, and so hopefully we're going to bring a little more sense. Now, there's a few things that have happened in the meantime between last week and this week. They've gone through a lot of kings. In fact, here, here are all the kings that we have. We have Nebuchadnezzar, and, and you know, we see Nebuchadnezzar ruling from uh, 605, to 562. Next king in line we, we run into is, is, he said, great name, uh, Evil Merodach. Let's just not go with that one. Hopefully we're not going to have that preface to our name. 562 to 560. Then we, we after uh, Merodach, we run into Nergizler. I don't know. He only lasted for, you know, four years or so. I'm, I'm it's a good thing none of us really speak, you know, fluent Aramaic, because I'm going to butcher all these. Um, the last one, or the next one is Labishi Marduk, only about nine months. That was a short one. Then we run into um, uh, Nabonidus, and Nabonidus is, is, is the current king. However, he creates a co-regent. His son, Belshazzar, who we run into, who we're going to talk about today, makes him a co-regent. It's kind of an interesting historians talk about Nebonidus and him kind of easing into retirement, but not letting go, where he would frequently, for months and months on the end, just go to like kind of the edge of the kingdom. And I, I look at it as he's just probably going to Hawaii and just hanging out for a while. And it's like, tells his son, you know what? You're a co-regent. Just just go for it. Just, just, just take care of it. And so we, we have this, you know, we, we refer to Belshazzar today as, as king, and that's what this means. There's kind of a, a, a dual leadership that's going on at the time. And so we have all this has taken place in between these two chapters. Now, you're going to revisit this in Daniel, so we'll come back to the time in between, but there is a reason why Daniel wanted to write this book and, and really uh, present it in this manner. And so we'll kind of unpack what, what that looks like. And so let's, let's, let's just dig right in. What we're going to do today, we're going to read some verses. We're going to talk about some things that stand out. We're going to read some verses. We're going to talk about it. read some verses, talk about it. And then at the end, we're going to kind of see like, okay, what do we do with it? That's kind of what today is going to look like. And so let's just start out with, with uh, you know, Daniel chapter 5, verse 1. Okay, Bibles go ahead and open. Uh, it says this, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Okay, so, so uh, this guy calls a feast and he wants to just drink and party with, with you know, a thousand people. And, and what's interesting about the verbiage is it says he drank wine um, in front of a thousand. So it almost presents this, this scene where you have a guy who's on stage almost that is everyone is supposed to have their attention towards him. He's going to drink and he's going to party. But, but here's what the, the chapter doesn't say, but what is happening at the moment. And we know this from multiple historians. This, this, this time has been well documented historically. Here's what's happening at the moment. At the moment, the Medo-Persian army has surrounded Babylon. They've surrounded the city and they are, they are besieging the city. Now, the, the king is, is completely um, like, like you know, just, just dismisses it. Doesn't care, isn't worried, isn't concerned. And in fact, he throws this party and some scholars think it's out of him showing that everything's fine. I'm not even worried about this. 
It's not a big deal. And some people think it's because of that to show a, a sense of calm. Some say it's just kind of ignorance, arrogance, whatever. He throws a party while surrounded by this army. And one of the reasons he's not concerned is because Babylon is quite a well-fortified city. It has its walls. They say we're, we're, we're 80 feet thick, about three, 300 plus feet tall. There's actually a picture of, a, of kind of modern day Iraq of kind of one of the, one of the, the, the wall, the existing um, walls in that region that was still up. So it was, as you can see, it's just a massive, massive wall. The city of Babylon also had the Euphrates running right through the middle of the city, and the city was big enough, the walls were vast enough to where you can actually, you can actually grow and harvest food inside the city while it's being besieged. And so you have, you have uh, protection with walls, they have, they have food, they have water, they, they're, they're fine. They're fine, they're, they're, they're completely protected, they're not concerned about it at all. And so the king decides, hey, let's party. I'm going I'm to throw a party. I'm just going to drink in front of thousands of people for, for whatever reason. And so, so that's where we land in this story. And so it's kind of interesting. All that's going on at the moment. So it's not just an, an idle Saturday night where he wants to party. But there's a lot going on right now. There's a lot going on right now. And we learn a little bit about Belshazzar just in that verse 1. But let's keep going. Verses 2 through 4 here. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought that the king and his lords, his wives, his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple of the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So what, do we, what, what, what more can we learn about this through that passage we just read? The first is this, that, that this, was, this was years and years past Nebuchadnezzar, right? Belshazzar is aware of the, the plunder that came from Israel, that came from Jerusalem. He's aware of the, the riches. He's aware of the, the history. He's aware of what Nebuchadnezzar brought back. He's, he's not ignorant. He's not, he's, he's, he, he may be a little dumb, but not ignorant. He knows, he knows what he has. And he starts drinking. He says, you know what? Go get those. Go get those, those special vessels that came from, from Solomon's temple. I want you to go get those things and I want you to bring them and, and, and we're gonna drink out of them. And not only did they drink out of them, but when they did so, they, they, were, they started praising these false gods while they were doing it. So not, not only did they disgrace and really mock God by drinking out of these sacred vessels, but, but while they're doing it, they just, they, he kind of doubled down on it and started, while well, he's doing it, worshiping these, these other gods, these false gods, and just throwing it back in God's face. Throwing it back, and it was, a, it, make no mistake, this was an intentional, arrogant mockery of God. That's what this is. He intentionally sought out these vessels. You can't tell me that there was like no more efficient cup in, in the whole kingdom rather than what was kept in this sacred place. Like, the, like, you know, I mean, I'm sure Solomon had great things to drink out of, great cups, but like this was intentional. This was like him saying, thumbing it in God's face, 
probably thinking, you know, th- this place will never fall. I, I got this. I'm fine. I know what I'm doing. And, and he, just, he just thumbs it in God's face, mocks him with what he's drinking out of and mocks him by what he's worshiping at the time. And we read in, in verse five and six, God's response. Verse five, immediately, the fingers of, of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite of the lampstand. The king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. It's probably a proper response, right? I mean, I, so, so, so you got a terrifying scene of, of you get this whole party and all of a sudden this, this, the king spots a kind of a hand writing on the wall. Now, now, you'll notice a couple of descriptors here on the, the plaster on the wall and then across from the lampstand. Two very important descriptors. On, on the plaster, they would have these teams have these white plaster on these walls. And even today, they've, they've uncovered these, these places where they would have these, these, these spaces of white plaster. And what they're reserved for is recording all of the amazing things that, you've, that the kings have done. All the, the feats, the victories, the, the glories of, of the king will be written on this space. It was, it was reserved for important things. It was reserved to record their glory and their splendor. And then the, the, the terminology of across from the lampstand denotes this was in a very visible place. There's even some scholars, and, and I'm not saying this is what's for sure, but even some scholars believe that the, the, the lamp that was referring to was, was the, the, one of the infamous lamps from Solomon's temple that he brought, he had out as well. So kind of almost like even a double mockery. Some scholars uh, think that, but it's just kind of, it's interesting to, to, to think and to unpack a little bit. But they, they he, he started to see what was going on. And I think it, all of a sudden reality hits you hard and he noticed what was going on. He said, it said his color changed. His knees got weak. He, he couldn't hold himself up. All of a sudden he, he realized something like is going on and, 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 I'm, and, and I don't know what it is but he is scared and he can't even hold himself up saying that, that his thoughts alarmed him you know how the Bible kind of like underscores some things kind of like under, underplays it here to say that his thoughts alarmed him was kind of a, a seems like an understatement he was terrified absolutely terrified so his, his I'll kind of summarize the next few verses his response then to this moment where he's trembling and, and, and his color left him, his response is, okay, I'm gonna get, get my, my, the wisest you know, people in here. I'm gonna get my, the Chaldeans, bring them back in and, and, and interpret what's going on. And, and they say, just like kind of Nebuchadnezzar's dream way back in, in verse uh, or chapter uh, two, where it's, he brings them in to interpret the dream and they can't do it. And they don't know how to do it. And, and he's, the king says, hey, I'm gonna give you riches. I'll give, I'll give power to whoever can you know, take care of this thing. And then uh, his, his wife, he calls it his wife, but really it's um, the scholars believe the queen mother who, who could be his grandmother, really, who was, was most likely around maybe either a, um, a wife of Nebuchadnezzar or was around at the time of Nebuchadnezzar was there and, and mentions, hey, uh, there was this Daniel guy who's, who's old now and we think probably most likely in some form of retirement at the time. He's probably 80. And, and they, this, this, you know, 
matriarchal figure says, she says, uh, hey, there's this, this Daniel. You remember him? He helped out Nebuchadnezzar. He was wise and, and really could interpret dreams. And, and Belshazzar's like, okay, get, get him in here. Let's, let's, I need to figure out what's going on here. And so Daniel comes in and, and he offers him gold. He offers him riches. He offers him honor. So let's pick it up in verse 17 here. Here's, here's the interaction where, where Daniel kind of steps into the room here. And here's how Daniel interacts with him. He says this. Uh, then, then Daniel answered and said, you know, before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. Now, just to, just to stop here, when he says he, he gave your father that, it's not father as in like immediate father, but talks about, it refers to kind of the, the, the kinship, much like we call Father Abraham, and the Jews say they're his, their father Abraham. It's not necessarily his, his biological son, but by lineage, that, that, that's how he's, he's referring to him. So just so for, for clarity's sake there. Uh, verse 19, and, and because of the greatness that he, had given, that he gave him, all peoples, nations, languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. Whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. Whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was given or was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of the beast, and his dwelling was with, with the, the wild donkeys. He was uh, fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. Daniel's approach is a little bit different with Belshazzar than it was with Nebuchadnezzar. If you can remember back to, to chapter two, where when Daniel comes in, you know, he, he starts out with, with Nebuchadnezzar in, in chapter two. Oh, you know, king, um, you know, uh, may you live forever. He's like, he's, he's, you know, giving some respect where Daniel comes in now. He's like, okay, let's just get this over with. That's, that's kind of the feeling we get here. It's like, no, Daniel's all business with, with Belshazzar because of the seriousness of the situation. He talks about Nebuchadnezzar, how he had ultimate power. God gave it to him. He wants to highlight that, that, that God allowed it, that God gave it to him, and Nebuchadnezzar's power was great. When he, whatever he said, that happened. Whatever he wanted, it, it was done. And then he brings up that God humbled him because he started to think of himself as better than he is. Daniel's reminding Belshazzar of this. Now, again, I don't think Belshazzar's ignorant of what this situation was. I think, I, I think this was, if it, if it hadn't already come back to him, it's starting to come back, because I, I think he knew about this. I think he was taught this. But then Daniel's bringing up, he humbled him until, until Nebuchadnezzar finally acknowledged that God is the most high, and then, and then God restored him. Remember last week? Nebuchadnezzar finally recognized God for who he was, and, and, and God lifted him back up. He's waiting. Daniel's almost saying like, like, you know, God's waiting for this moment, Belshazzar, when, when this is gonna happen to you. But, but it has never happened and it won't happen. Let's continue in verse 22. And you, his son, 
Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart. Though you, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of this house have been brought before you. And you, your lords, your wives, your concubines, have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. So Daniel's laying it out very, very clearly. You know better. You know what you're doing, Belshazzar. You know what's going on, and, and, and you just kept doing it. You took these sacred vessels from, from the God's temple, and you, just, and you just drank out of them like they were just any other cup that you come across. And when you did that, you just, you just spit in the face of God because you, you held the, these, these holy vessels and, and then while doing it, you're worshiping false gods while you're doing it. And, and God is, is uh, he's ticked to say the least. He's ticked to say the least. And then finally, it's like you ignored God. You ignored the one who gives you breath and you praised fake things that can't do a darn thing. These false gods can't do nothing. So, so he's, he's just setting up this stage, and I don't know if, if Belshazzar is so arrogant, he's not getting what's going on here, or if he's still scared, but he's just kind of like, yeah, 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 get to the point, get to the point, get to the point. Who knows what, what, what he's like when he's hearing this, but what he's hearing is pretty serious stuff. Verse 24 continues on, and, and where Daniel interprets here, and he says, okay, then from his presence, the, the, the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. So, so you, you, you get four words there, mene, mene. You know, we, we know from Old Testament that repetition means emphasis. So, so this, this first part's a really big deal that, that, that says, you know, that, that your, your days have been numbered. Like, that's, that's really big, that's big, it's important. It's, you know, that, that your, your days have been numbered and they're coming to an end. So that's the most alarming thing. And then he says that you know, you've been weighed in the balances and the, the terminology, the picture there is one of weighing money, the, the, the term they'd use to kind of like cancel out things. So you picture one of those old school balances, you know, that has this. That's the picture they're painting with, you know, trying to, trying to balance the finances, trying to balance the money, making sure this much gold equals this much, um, you know, money. And it says he, he's been weighed and, and wanting. He's been weighed, but been, been deemed wanting. So in other words, he, he is not measuring up. He never repented. He never got it. He kept his hard heart towards God. And then finally, he's like, your kingdom is divided. It's over. Your kingdom is divided. And so Belshazzar is, is, is taking this all in. He's, he's seeing uh, the writing on the wall literally, and then we can use it in figurative, we use it now, seeing the writing on the wall, it's been interpreted, here's his response, verse 29, then uh, Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple, a chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation made about him, 
that he should be the third ruler of the kingdom. And then that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old at the time. So just like that. It, 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 Belshazzar hears the interpretation. Oh yeah, by the way, like your kingdom, your days are numbered. They're gonna end. You don't measure up. God's not happy. Uh, you know, and I'm dividing up your kingdom. Okay, great. Well, you're, you get a promotion. Here's some gold. Here's a robe. You know what? Tell you what, you're the third, you know, you're the, you're, you're the third person in charge right now. <laughs> I was like, what? Like, doesn't that seem a little like, okay, I, I, mean, I guess you're following through with what you said, but like, like, did you not hear? Like, shouldn't you be like, I'm gonna repent? I'm gonna, I mean, no. He just kind of keeps going. It's like, you know what? You, you get a promotion. And the last official thing that we read from, from him is that he, the last thing that's recorded is you promoted Daniel. And then it says that night he died. He dies because here's what's happening in the meantime. So in the meantime, we know, and we know this from historians, multiple historians have written on this. So here's what's happening in the meantime. The, the Euphrates River at the time was, was low, but the army, the Persian, Medo-Persian army was diverting, not the whole river, because they couldn't do the whole river, but some of it. So not only was it low, they made it even lower so that you could wade in and that you could go under the gates and into the city undetected. So would normally on a vigilant day at a vigilant hour, uh, it, pro- it would have been stopped. Would, wouldn't have worked on any, any kind of normal circumstance, but be, because of, who knows, because of the party, because they weren't paying attention, because of whatever. Meanwhile, all this is going on where, where while Belshazzar is, is giving Daniel his promotion, it could have well been already, the, the, the cities are already possibly taken. They don't even know it yet. But this army got into the city, into this impenetrable Place, and that very night, the city fell, and they had a new king, and the old king died. And so we we have this comparison, we have this um, juxtaposition of two kings. Two kings. We see Nebuchadnezzar and we see Belshazzar, and and I think Daniel put these books, and God wanted him to put them side by side in this book to compare the two responses that we have to God. Both kings have power. They have prestige. They have money. They, they, what they want to be done gets done, but, and they both become super arrogant. But the difference is that Nebuchadnezzar in his arrogance finally recognizes God for who he is and humbles himself. And then God restores him and builds him up where Belshazzar continues to, to plow through with his, with his arrogance and, and we see what happens. You know, I can't help but think of, you know, because we're talking about Solomon's temple. Start thinking about Solomon and, and Ecclesiastes, the last two verses in Ecclesiastes. Um, Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14, they say this. They say, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, every secret thing, whether good or evil. I can't help but like, like wonder the, or think of the irony there of Belshazzar just, you know, having these, these vessels, mocking God, and, and just, you know, the, the, the whole time just, you know, completely ignoring that what he's doing is gonna be, he's gonna be held accountable for. As we kind of get into the application side of things here, um, I'm, I'm, I'm reminded of the difference between knowledge and, and, then, and then the application of knowledge or, or, or the deeds. And I, I just kind of a, a point I want to make here is that, that being a Christian means that you, that you know and that you follow Jesus. 
It means that you know and you follow. It means there's a, there's a, there's a, a, a knowledge involved. There's a, there's a cognitive understanding that's involved. But there's also a, a physical action, and there's also an emotion that's involved where, where we, don't just, we don't just think it, but we act on it. It's not enough to simply just know about God. Belshazzar just knew, he knew about God. He knew the history. He knew, he knew how, you know, the, 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 and knew what, was, what they worshipped and knew what he did with Nebuchadnezzar, but he completely ignored it, and it, it was not enough. And I think today, too many Christians, we know a lot about God, but we just don't do anything about it. We've convinced ourselves that, that, you know, attendance uh, at, a, at, a, at a church service, or we convince ourselves that me just, just having experienced God way back when and, ha- and, and knowing about it, that, that that's good, that I'm good. And that somehow, you know, God is pleased with how much I know. But when it comes right down to, am I, am I living in an obedient way? Um, it's, a, it's a different story. When it comes down to, am I, am I really loving people as, as Jesus would love? It's a different story. Am I actually acting out my Christian faith? It's a different story. I think in, in, in high school, we, we used to have a bunch of, um, big group of, of guys that would dress up like cowboys. You know, they'd have like the whole, this is in the Portland area, and they'd have like, you know, the, the pants and the boots and the hats and the, you know, button-up shirts and all that kind of stuff. And, and, and it, they're all shiny and great. And I just remember like, you know, you, you know, like you live in the city, but you just you know your big truck and the whole bit, and then and then I remember I had some other friends who like actually like lived on, you know, kind of a a, a small ranch who you know were getting up at five in the morning to feed you know the, the livestock before they came to school and were you know whose boots actually got mud on them, and, and you know all this kind of stuff. It's like I don't know if you guys have ever known this, but it's a funny when you see the kind of like the fake cowboys and then you see like oh, the legit. <laughs> Cowboys, like there's a real big difference, right? There's a real big difference, and, and there's, there, there's, it's because the, you know, the, the real ones. And I'm not saying you can't wear cowboy hats or boots. Like, go for it, do it, go for it. But there's a difference between those who, who are actually doing that kind of work and those who maybe just dress like they are. And I, I think of of this situation um, or this idea of faith and deeds. And I, sometimes as Christians, we just dress up and we just put it on, but we're not actually doing it. And we think it, 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 uh, it's good enough just to put put the costume on rather than actually living out Christianity. I think James says it the best. And James 2 says this. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says they have, uh, he has faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, uh, and one, one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is it? So also, faith by itself, if it, is not, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even demons believe that, and they shudder. It's a, it's, it's a harsh reminder and, it's, it, and it really was, was hitting home with me as I was praying. It's like, I need to be somebody who doesn't just say, talk about faith, or just remember that I, that I have faith, but I need to be actually acting out that faith on the daily, in the big things and in the little things. So hopefully, I, I want to, I if those of you that, that are Christians, I want to encourage you this morning to, to this isn't to, to hit you over the head, but to encourage you, let's be, 
Let's be people of faith who act out our faith. We don't, we don't just put on a costume. We don't just pretend, but that we're actually living it out. And we're actually making it permanent every area of our life. The world needs authentic Christ followers right now. We need people to, to really emulate what it means to love one another right now. Now, if you haven't given your, your life to Jesus or you haven't really you know, fully committed, um, I, I just want to encourage you with a couple things this morning. We are, we are confronted with, with a, a, a reality, and that is that, that our life, our life will be looked at in the end when we die, when we pass away, and, and that, that God will look at our life and, and just, what did you do with it? You know, Ecclesiastes says that we're to fear God and keep his commandments. That's the whole duty of man. Everything we do, good or evil, we brought into light. And I want to encourage you today to really think and process. You know, what, what, am I, what am I doing with my life? Jesus offers us a full life. He offers us uh, truth. He offers us purpose. He offers, offers us meaning. In John 14, 6, Jesus says that I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. I don't know about you, but, but I feel like truth... Um, is, is important. And I feel like today, if, if I, if I find truth more important than anything else. When there's so much, you know, uh, uh, misinformation that goes around, you know, that's a buzz word right now. There's so much, so many lies that go around. I just want truth. I just want truth, and I, I want to live by that truth. And Jesus is saying, I am the truth. And, and guess what? Jesus has not changed in the last year, last 10 years. He does not change. His love for us continues, and he is how we get to the Father. He is, he is the one who, who gets us to heaven. It is through him. If you feel like your life has not been a full life, you feel like your life is lacking that truth and lacking that purpose, I want you to consider giving your life to Jesus this morning. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. We believe that Jesus is the way to God. We believe that only through him can our sins be forgiven, and that is how, that is how we get that gift of eternal life, and we live with purpose. The worship team is going to come out here and, and we're going to close with um, an amazing, familiar song. One about grace and about, and about um, mercy that only comes from God. And I want to encourage you, if you've never given your life to Jesus, as, as we sing this song of worship, I want you to, to, to think of this as, as your story or what could be your story. Those of you who have given your life to Jesus, as we sing, you're going you're gonna to be like, yeah, this is my story. This is it. Song's Amazing Grace. It's a familiar tune, but, but, but let's personalize it this morning. Let's make it our prayer to God. If you haven't given your life to Jesus, I want you to think of this as your prayer. And afterwards, when we give a chance to accept Jesus, why don't we stand but before we sing? I'm gonna pray real quick before we get into this. So, so go ahead and stand. Because I want to encourage you with this, with this final thing, that, that living to please ourselves is fleeting and leads to an unsatisfied life, but following Jesus will bring purpose and will bring fulfillment. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we come before you having looked 
at two kings, both who, who were lifted up by you, um, both ended up becoming prideful, and one recognized you as his Lord and Savior, and the other did not. Lord, we are, we, we are not so different. God, we, we, we sometimes um, place ourselves higher than we ought. But Lord, this morning, I, I, I recognize you as, as the King and as Lord and as the Creator. And, and Jesus, I, I, I need you this morning. And Lord, if there's people in this room who have not given their life to you and, or folks listening at home who have not given their life to you, I pray that you would um, use this time this morning, use this prayer, this song that we're about to sing as that, as that tug back into your arms. Lord, your grace is amazing. It is undeserved. And Lord, right now, we recognize that grace that can only come from you. In your name, amen.